Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. I hope you're doing all right. Um, if you want to come on the radio, uh, come on my Times Radio show and do the quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Email me now with your details. Get your phone out. You've obviously got your phone out. Actually, listen to the podcast. Drop me an email, uh, matt.chorley at times.radio, uh, with your name and your number. We can get you on the radio. We can have a chat, talk a bit about what's going on in the world. You can do the quiz. You might become the Prime Minister. It's matt.chorley at times.radio. Uh, get your phone out uh, and do it. Now, while you're listening to the podcast, coming up, it's a big day in the awful, dreadful saga of Afghanistan. Boris Johnson uh, convening the meeting of the G7. Uh, obviously lots of focus on what Boris Johnson and Joe Biden think, but what we thought we'd do is have a tour of the rest of the G7, the other five countries, and find out what uh, each of those countries is doing, public opinion, and the political reaction to what is uh, going on in Afghanistan uh, right now. So that's our big thing, which is coming up in a moment. But first of all, we kick off, as ever, with our columnist panel, it's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkelstein and David Aronovich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio just gets sillier. I've missed that. I've missed that. I feel like we haven't had that for, for weeks. Uh, but they're back. They're back. Daniel Finkelstein, good morning. Good morning. And David Ivanovich, morning. Well, hello. <laughs> good. Blimey. I'm like, normally, you just look straight in with a complaint, David. I, I prefer this. this uh... <laughs> no, I've decided to be seductive today. <laughs> well, I think that's more in the eye of the beholder, David. But... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Do see. my best. We shall see. Right, uh, where shall we start? Uh, Dominic Raab. Let's talk about Dominic Raab. And um, one, of the, I think one of the bookmakers put out a press release this morning saying he was odds-on favourite to be the first uh, cabinet minister to, to leave the cabinet. What should Boris Johnson do about him, Danny? Well... I think, it, I mean, I agree with Matthew Paris about this. I don't agree with him about much on this subject, but it's a gigantic displacement activity. This is a massive public disaster. 
uh, what's happened in Afghanistan, a 20-year-long uh, disaster because we've ended a 20-year commitment in such a terrible way with terrible consequences for our security, for Western prestige and, and, and all the influence that that has on, the develop, on developing uh, democracies and maintaining uh, world security. Uh, and whether Dominic Raab was or wasn't on holiday for one telephone call is really secondary. I mean, he obviously did make a mistake, a, a, a misjudgment uh, on his part. Um, but I really do think it's a secondary issue. And by the way, just a mere political calculation, uh, it probably reduces the chances of him being moved rather than increases it, just simply because, um, you know, whereas Boris Johnson might have previously been inclined to move him uh, quietly, now it would be much more difficult to do. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm not sure that... You know, I've just rebelled against the idea that this is the central issue. Um, but it just means that we can avoid all the difficult questions for people like me, is this kind of intervention possible? Does it work? Can we maintain uh, commitment to it? And all the difficult questions for people who disagree with me, which is, if you don't maintain this kind of intervention, what happens now? And all of it can be dissolved while we discuss whether or not Dominic Raab should or shouldn't have made a telephone call, which probably wouldn't have changed anything. But does it, I mean, I suppose there's a, there's a broader question as to whether or not you feel that Dominic Raab as Foreign Secretary of the United Kingdom is someone particularly grappling with those issues either? Uh, it's not. It's think... not. It's not just that one phone call. It's more the question okay. of he didn't seem particularly gripped by it before. He went on holiday and delegated it. Said he didn't want to be contacted. Didn't appear to be I... particularly across it as an issue. I don't believe that. Um, uh, um, that his sort of inability to be assiduous or concentrate on his work. Uh, is really the issue. Britain doesn't have a foreign policy. Um, it, relying on a relationship with the United States when the United States is clearly becoming more isolationist, it hasn't resolved its relationship with the rest of Europe. It now doesn't know what its position is on these sorts of uh, interventions. Um, and that's the problem. Uh, as Foreign Secretary, you know, because I've got a very dif big disagreement with Dominic Raab about one of the central foreign policy issues of our time, which is our relationship with the European Union, it goes without saying that I think he doesn't have a very good uh, strategic view of it. Uh, and that's my problem with him. Uh, but that's my problem with a lot more than him. Do I think he as a personality is specifically the problem? Do I think his, you know, lack of work ethic is the problem? No, I don't. But do I think uh, Britain's strategic uh, position is a problem? And do I think Dominic Raab is, uh, you know, got a quite a big responsibility for that? Yes. David, is that, is that the point that actually some of the debate about Dominic Raab and his sun lounge or paddleboarding lesson or whatever it was, is actually, it sort of becomes a shorthand for, uh, is he up to the job of being foreign? So, you know, somebody's got to set uh, foreign policy and the, the job of foreign secretary should be quite, quite a big job. And is he doing the big sort of strategic thinking? Does he have any idea really of Britain's place in the world? Yeah, Dan is 90% right, but the 10% that he's wrong is quite interesting, really. Uh, he's obviously right that it's a displacement activity. He's obviously right that it's not the kind of big issue. Um, where he's wrong is, I do think you should be able to expect more from your foreign secretary than staying on holiday when one of the biggest crises that involves Britain is burgeoning and arises. I mean, it is kind of... I mean, it does strike me as kind of 101, really, that yeah. somebody okay. calls you and says, 
uh, you need to come back here and you go and you take control and you put yourself as far as you possibly can at the centre of things in a way consistent with actually getting the best kind of consequence. And the second thing I think about this is, I think it's not untypical of this government under this prime minister. I honestly don't. I think actually it's broadly what you expect to find under this prime minister and senior ministers seem to have taken their cue from it. Dominic Raab, we know, is one of the most, he's a very, very intelligent man. He is intensely ambitious. And for him to take the message back from somehow or other his prime minister that it didn't really matter if he spent a couple of extra days on holiday when this was happening is, I think, really indicative of something. So, yes, it is a bit of a displacement act but forgive me for a moment while I displace myself to say <laughs> we could do without him. Just to be clear, I do think that was definitely an error. Um, by the way, I don't think necessarily that if he'd come back to this country, he would have, in quotes, taken control or that it would have made any difference whatsoever to the situation. But it was an appropriate thing to do. He should have done it. There's so much in uh, what's happened that's a disaster um, that I sort of rebel against the creation of this uh, issue as a disaster uh, when when the, the issue is so much bigger than that. But just to be clear, I don't disagree with you, David. That is obviously, um, you know, you're obviously right. Um, and, and it was definitely a mistake on his part. Um, I, it's not where my criticism of him lies. I, I, I don't think that he's somebody who sort of doesn't take his job seriously and is lazy. Um, but I think his, the problems are different. Um, but I do think this was a mistake. But is it, it I suppose the, the, the question is, do you... Do, you have a view on on the situation in Afghanistan and, uh, you know, part of the problem is this conversation always starts, well, I wouldn't start from here. But given where we are right now, um, this whole situation, the build-up to it, the, Britain's relationship with America, the, the government's ability to forward plan, um, uh, to take decisions on its own, actually the, go- the UK government's ability to get other allies other than America on board, you know, a lot of those... Yeah, ultimately, it goes back to Boris Johnson. But a lot of those questions do run through the Foreign Office. And it's not just about what Dominic Raab didn't, didn't, do, didn't, didn't do last weekend. But it doesn't suggest big strategic thinking going. Like he's, he's obviously very hardworking. Uh, I'm sure he sits and reads his papers and signs them off and all of that. But uh, does he have any idea where Britain should be in 12, year, 12 months, five years, 10 years' time in terms of uh, its p- position in the world? I mean, you get the sense not, David. Um, it, it is. I mean, I, I think Danny laid it out very well. It is extremely difficult. I mean, we discussed some of the things last week, Matt, when you were on holiday. Um, Do, they I, tried to get the hold of you. The Prime Minister told me it was fine. I was told it was fine for me to stay the way for a couple more days. <laughs> exactly. They tried to get you back because they said, look, Danny and David are discussing this and you're going to want to be there and kind of, you know, shepherd it into some kind of conclusion <laughs> that you weren't. And we somehow had to kind of manage, uh, had to manage without you. Um, uh, and you're obviously right. I mean, Biden announced the withdrawal that was going to happen back in April. Somehow or other, and we discussed this last week, we missed it. And by we missed it, we all seem to have missed it. We knew it was kind of happening. We made some kind of commentary about it, but we didn't understand the significance of it. Um, now, the government, we could say that the government's to blame in its intelligence for not understanding what was going to happen. But as we both said at the time last week, 
you anticipate that the Americans will somehow or other, through their incredible kind of uh, abilities and resources, have worked out what the kind of problems are and will have covered you from them. And what we discovered was that they hadn't in any way whatsoever. That was incredibly difficult. So I don't know whether it was dilatory governance on the part of the British government. I mean, when it comes to these things, I don't reside a lot of confidence in this government and its strategic overview and its capacity to manage disasters. I just don't I, I mean, I just don't see it. And other people may regard that as being unfair. I hope that if this were a government more to my liking and it were to reveal the similar characteristics, then I would be similarly critical. Um, I mean, we should point out as well, there's an amazing stat, which I think I first saw on Question Time last week. Lisa Nandy, the shadow uh, foreign secretary, Dominic Raab's opposite number, uh, had never mentioned the word Afghanistan in the House of Commons until Parliament was recalled last week. Sure. So it's not like the opposition were particularly across this uh, and recognising that there was going to be an issue that, that our key ally in Afghanistan had set a deadline, which we seem to be completely... Um, yeah. Uh, caught off guard by, I suspect in part because attention of media, political establishment, uh, the government and the opposition very much focused on uh, coronavirus. And this is one of the things which is which seems to have uh, slipped past us. Um, one of the other big uh, things that the, the well, the country, the world faces right now is uh, is climate change. Uh, we had that report a couple of weeks ago warning it was red alert for, for the planet. And no, we've just sort of forgot all about it and gone back to, gone back to our business. Um, uh, Extinction Rebellion are in London right now, uh, David, trying to, to put it back on the agenda again. Does unveiling a big pink table and lying underneath a transit van, uh, does that help or hinder the climate cause, do you think? Um, I don't honestly know, but, you know, London's full of people demonstrating about one thing or another, and at least with Extinction Rebellion, their cause is a good one, whereas with half the people wandering around London, their causes are bad. The only thing I would say is you can only measure these things, really, by by their impact. Does it help persuade people do the things that you want it to do? And the short answer is, by and large, if you really piss people off, then it won't help you. Language, much. David. But, there might. But if I, it, mean, it, I mean, it's unlikely, but there might be children listening. You think they don't know that phrase? <laughs> you don't think you don't think British children know that word and don't use that word every day? Okay, well, fair enough. It's your show, so uh, I shan't affright it with my appalling language anymore. I shall just call you out the first time I hear you say it. Um, uh, but anyway, if you make people fed up, then in that case, it doesn't necessarily help your cause very much. If, on the other hand, you manage to do it in such a way that you don't make them fed up and you draw attention to it, then that's what good, decent protest is for. So um, that those those are my kind of conditions. By and large, these demonstrations are good for the people who are on them and aren't particularly effective about changing people's opinions. But that doesn't that's not a total iron rule, and that can change. Well, I, d- I don't. Can I say that I don't actually agree that their cause is a good one. We're we're all against uh, man-made climate change with the exception of a few people um, but the vast majority of people are against man-made climate change the question is what we're going to do about it um, and so it's a bit like me 
deciding I'm going to sit in the middle of Trafalgar Square, uh, arguing that we need to stop murder, and we're going to do that by building a large pile of sugar sachets. Um, <laughs> and um, you say, well, what's that going to do about it? I'm going to say nothing, but at least I'm against murder. And um, the, 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 the question with Extinction Rebellion is not, are they against climate change, but are they presenting a coherent, useful way of dealing with climate change? And do they have to sit in Trafalgar Square in order to get people to do it? And the answer to those things in both cases is neither. So I'm sympathetic with the fact that they think that climate change is an existential threat. They are completely correct about that. But lots of people are correct about that. And it doesn't mean that their, their cause, what they're demonstrating for, is right. Uh, as it so happens, I don't think it is. Um, that doesn't mean they don't have the right to be there. It doesn't mean that you can't have respect for their uh, passion. It doesn't mean that you don't have respect for their sense of urgency about the problems that concern themselves. But I can't agree uh, to say that their cause is a right one, because their cause isn't just dealing with climate change. Their cause is the whole um, variety of things that they plan to do about it, most of which are either counterproductive or completely impossible. Um, I, I, you're, you're precisely right about this, which is that they're not, I don't think that they believe that most people don't think climate change is a problem. I think that they are arguing that what we are doing about it is insufficient. Um, and in many ways, that's a perfectly respectable argument. And if you feel that what you're doing about it is insufficient, then saying so and arguing so is obviously an important part of what you do. So that goes back to the point that I was making, which is persuading people to support and do the things which you need to do in order to give effect to your concern about climate change. It's not, it's no surprise to discover there are quite a lot of people who say they're concerned about climate change who actually balk at things that you might do about it and so on. So that's not a completely unreasonable thing for some of them to say. Well, I think that they balk at some of the things that you might do about it, because my view is that the answer to uh, climate change will ultimately lie in technological uh, and economic development uh, in green directions. Um, and they uh, essentially oppose the capitalist economy that might solve uh, the problem. So, I mean, I may be wrong about this, by the way, but what I'm trying to illustrate is that this is an argument about the means that you use. And simply saying uh, they feel really strongly about it and it's really urgent, that is um perfectly reasonable point of view but it's not different to how lots and lots of people feel and it doesn't mean that they're making a coherent point uh, or that their point is universally uh, you know universally accepted as virtuous um it they're, they're making an argument that goes far beyond climate change is very important and we ought to do something about it and we're not doing the right things uh, they go into what they think the right things are and i don't think those are the right things yeah, and if you, I mean, if you go on their website, Extinction Rebellion, that you know, they're, they're, there's an awful lot about the the means. They say conventional uh, approaches of voting, lobbying, petitions, and protests have failed because powerful political and economic interests prevent change. Our strategy is therefore one of non-violent, disruptive civil obedience, a rebellion. They say they go on to talk about uh, we do not want to seize power; we want to place power in the hands of citizens. And part of me is thinking, well, ultimately, realistically, if you are actually going to bring about change, it is going to be done through. Well, politics. They're also they're, they're also wrong about something. I, I think in that sense, uh, and, and actually they diminish in a way their own achievement uh, in argument, um, because what I pick up is that actually there is a very significant commitment 
by all kinds of parts of society and by the uh, and by people this goes back to danny's point which I, I agree with about actually not just the thing itself but about doing quite a lot about it there's a, a really is quite a big commitment uh, uh, to it it's whether it's sufficient i don't agree with danny that all the answers are technological i don't think he meant quite to suggest that they were all technological there are quite significant changes we will have to make to the some of the things that we do uh, in order to make sure that we hit the one point we stay within in the 1.5 degrees uh, model and that includes heading for net zero um, uh, uh, emissions ourselves and all kinds of other stuff which we've got to do um, and I would like to see obviously the demonstrators pay a little bit more attention to the detail of that and not be quite so pessimistic about what it is that so far the argument has managed to achieve because one of the things I think you've got to give to people is the idea that this actually can be done uh, and so on and really catastrophist talking can sometimes and quite often be demobilizing rather than mobilizing i think you've got to say it's incredibly urgent we've got to do stuff about it and we are doing quite a few so we've got to do a, a, a fair bit more we can we can get there yeah and i suppose the uh, um uh, the, the question is is whether because one of the th- one of the demands on there is they talk about citizens Government's create and be led by the decisions of a citizens' assembly on climate and ecological ecological justice, and sometimes actually governments have to take difficult decisions that that aren't you know universally popular. Um, and what you might get out of uh, a citizens' assembly might not necessarily. I suppose it's slightly confusing that the idea of what they think very strongly is necessarily the same as what everyone else uh, thinks. But um, it's always nice to have uh, both of you on to tell us what the, uh, the things that you disagree about. So that was Danny Finkelstein and David Wanovich. There you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to the Times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Coming up, what's really going on in the G7? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Now it's time for this... Yes, at 2.30 today, Boris Johnson will admit his fellow world leaders into his Zoom meeting of the G7 to discuss the crisis unfolding in Afghanistan. The NATO and UN General Secretaries have also been invited to join the discussion. The mood is grim and a long way from those slightly peculiar chummy backslapping uh, pictures we saw when Boris Johnson hosted the G7 in person in Cornwall earlier this summer. Speaking overnight, the Prime Minister said the priority was to coordinate our response to the immediate crisis, to reaffirm our commitment to the Afghan people and to ask our international pa- partners to match the UK's commitment to support those in need. But privately, Downing Street making clear that Boris Johnson will try to press President Biden to keep US troops at Kabul airport beyond the deadline agreed with the Taliban of August the 31st. But following a warning of consequences from the Taliban, if that happened, the American president is thought to be unlikely uh, to uh, heed those warnings and will still remove the US troops as planned. So what we thought we'd do is have a tour of the G7 to find out exactly what is happening in the various parts of uh, the world, uh, the leading uh, economies and democracies. Uh, Let's get the picture then, first of all, from America. Sarah Baxter is a writer of the US Diary for the Sunday Times and told us earlier that Joe Biden's list of priorities today does not include keeping his G7 allies happy. Joe Biden is between a rock and a hard place. Of course he wants to make nice with European allies, with the G7, but he's far more worried, actually, about what the US military is telling him, that he has to decide right now, pretty much, whether or not he's going to meet that August 31st deadline for withdrawing troops or risk leaving them behind and subject to attacks by either the Taliban or possibly even ISIS. So uh, he's got a lot on his mind. Uh, Thousands are being evacuated all the time. uh, But the priority, very clearly directed by the US government, is for US citizens and green card holders to come out first. There are reports, some denied by um, the State Department, that um, people with the right to be evacuated, you know, Afghan allies, translators, are being sent back. So the situation is still very chaotic. And much as he'd love to be, you know, back chumming around with the G7, I think um, he's not too worried about his allies at the moment. He's far more worried about what's going on on the ground and the domestic implications for the Democrats, which are not good. Uh, that was Sarah Baxter for the Sunday Times, uh, giving the picture from America. Uh, let's find out now, um, slightly close to the home, that what's going on in France? What's the attitude to uh, events in Afghanistan? And uh, what's the public mood like there? Let's speak to uh, Dominique Tricand, a former defence advisor to President Macron. Good morning. Good morning. Um, there's some suggestions that uh, President Macron might be supportive of Boris Johnson's calls uh, for an extension of US forces staying in Afghanistan. Is, is that right? Is that what you're hearing? Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, we think that uh, there was big mistakes in the intelligence gathering by the US. 
than in the planning for withdrawing, and all the allied were, were put in front of the problem. And uh, our analysis is that we have no time to uh, extract the people before the deadline. And the deadline was established by the Taliban and the US only. So we will try to change the mind of the US, even if it's difficult. And we are working closely with the UK uh, in the G7, but also at the Security Council. Currently, the two missions are working on the, uh, a resolution trying to help to solve the problem. And I mean, I suppose it's one thing trying to change Joe Biden's mind. It would also require changing the, the mind of the Taliban, wouldn't it? Well, of course, but uh, the Taliban will be very difficult to change their mind. Uh, it's happened that uh, yesterday I was on the uh, Arab channel talking to Taliban, and you can understand very clearly that they don't want uh, to compromise. They said there is an agreement uh, you must fulfill to the agreement, and that's it. And uh, this is your problem because you, you are in the end of the American for the disagreement. And now they don't say that, but we understand that we are in the end of the Taliban because this agreement was, uh, was done between the US and the Taliban. Uh, we're also um, in the UK, there's been lots of focus on how many British nationals have been uh, evacuated out of Afghanistan, the role of uh, British uh, troops there. What is the involvement of uh, the French military? How many French nationals are there? Is, is, it, is it a big issue there too? No, I mean, it's less than in UK because uh, France, as you know, has left militarily in 2014. So uh, it's a, an old story. But uh, so and we've got very few nationals. So the national have been withdrawn, including the national from European country uh, with the delegation of Europe. The problem is mainly on the Afghan and we are trying to solve the problem of the Afghan who are working for the French army. Uh, still, some of them are in Afghanistan, but a lot of them have been uh, extracted from uh, Kabul. The other problem is the other. I mean, around the airport, you've got a lot of people who have no, no real reason to go out from Kabul, except that they are afraid from the Taliban. So it's very difficult to draw the list of the people who will be uh, taken out from Kabul. Currently, the list is mainly journalists, uh, artists, people who openly have been uh, facing the Taliban, so we want to protect them. But for the French national, European national, and the uh, people who have been working for the French army, the problem is roughly solved, even if we've got still some people who are in Kabul. And, and what about the sort of domestic uh, politics of this? What, where are the, the, where's public <coughs> opinion in France in terms of uh, French involvement? And there's, there's been... Uh, already quite a lot of um, uh, reaction to uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron calling for a plan to sort of manage the Afghan migration. Obviously, migration is a, a big political issue in France and the prospect of lots of Afghans arriving in France ahead of uh, the French presidential elections will be a big political headache for him, won't it? Yes, uh, yes, you're right. I mean, uh, in France, in eight months, we'll have a presidential election. So every everybody's taking any any subject to discuss with uh, President Macron. I think his his, uh, his speech was very clear. First, the national. Secondly, those who supported uh, the the French army, for example. And thirdly, those who are on di direct threat. Then the rest, they will have to leave in Afghanistan because we can't uh, uh, have everybody coming in France or in Europe. And, uh, and Afghan, Afghanistan needs people to oppose 
Taliban in the long term, not only with uh, Commandant Massoud's son with, uh, the, with their weapon, but also in public uh, opinion, in the media and all that. Uh, I know it's sometimes harsh to say that, but they've got to defend their country. It's really good to be to get the picture there from France. That's Dominique Tricon, a former defence advisor to President Macron. Uh, what we're doing is just having a tour of all of the G7 countries uh, ahead of Do- uh, Boris Johnson hosting uh, that uh, sum- summit this afternoon. Let's head to Italy now. Uh, Times Italy correspondent Philip Willen is there. Hi, Philip. Hello. Um, what, uh, what's, the, what's the view from Italy in terms of uh, how things are unfolding in Afghanistan and Italy's involvement? Well, I think uh, the Italians uh, have uh, taken pretty much the same view as uh, uh, nearly everybody else in world opinion, uh, seeing this as a a complete disaster that uh, uh, they found themselves uh, caught up in uh, because of their role in Afghanistan. Um, It was reported that uh, Italy had tried to uh, convince the Americans uh, to delay their withdrawal uh, even some time ago. Uh, and handle things in a, in a different way. Uh, and I think the Italians, um, like other NATO allies, uh, have been very unhappy to be uh, not, not to be uh, consulted and uh, uh, not really to have any say in uh, how this uh, disaster is unfolding. So uh, uh, I think uh, public opinion has been uh, very shocked and there's also been a great uh, outpouring of solidarity uh, for... Uh, the people who uh, uh, assisted the Italian troops uh, when they were in Herat uh, and uh, also the people uh, involved in um, working for NGOs, uh, working on uh, uh, nation building, uh, what uh, uh, Joe Biden said uh, was not the, the, uh, not the mission. Uh, I think that's what uh, Italians felt uh, uh, was really worthwhile in uh, their involvement uh, uh, in these uh, 20 years in uh, Afghanistan. And what's the situation now in terms of trying to get some of those Afghan workers, uh, interpreters and so on, who helped the Italian uh, military? Is there an effort to get them out? Is, there, um, is, that, is that the thing which is happening right now? Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, it's been very chaotic and difficult. Uh, but uh, I believe that uh, uh, in proportion, uh, Italy has evacuated uh, uh, as many as any other country involved. Um, uh, at one stage, uh, apparently, uh, uh, women who uh, um, had a, a justification for uh, being evacuated by the Italians uh, were being uh, identified with uh, red sashes on their arms in the crowd so that they could uh, uh, identify themselves and, and uh, actually get access to uh, Kabul airport. Uh, But um, the the Italians have definitely been uh, putting in a a big effort uh, and uh, the um, refugees, interpreters and their families have been arriving at uh, uh, different uh, airports uh, in the country uh, since the beginning of the the, uh, evacuation. And just uh, finally, Philip, in terms of the uh, what happens next and the the, the the risk of another uh, migrant crisis uh, hitting uh, Europe, I mean, just because of geographically where it is, Italy tends to be on the front uh, front line. Is that a concern uh, politically um, in Italy right now? Uh, it is absolutely. Um, the uh, right wing parties that oppose immigration uh, are saying that uh, Italy must take in an absolute minimum of uh, 
Afghans, only those with a very strong uh, justification for having uh, assisted uh, Italian troops. Uh, so uh, th there is uh, a lot of concern about that, that uh, people will be arriving uh, on Italian borders and uh, uh, adding to very large numbers of people coming over from uh, North Africa. Um, the other thing, of course, is Italy is, uh, has the presidency of the G20 uh, and uh, Prime Minister Mario Draghi has made it clear that he wants to uh, involve other major world powers such as Russia and China uh, in discussions over the future. Uh, and it, it does seem that uh, that uh, makes perfect sense that uh, uh, major powers in the uh, in the area obviously have to be uh, involved in uh, discussions of uh, the future of this uh, very troubled country yeah it'll be interesting to see um, what the the outcome of the g7 today is in terms of uh, russia and china uh, inf influence involvement uh, really good to speak to you philip willen there uh, in italy let's go to canada now where the crisis in afghanistan is colored by an upcoming prime ministerial election uh, let's hear uh, this now from uh, the times reporter it is charlie mitchell in in uh, ottawa canadians are traditionally extremely welcoming when it comes to refugees and immigrants and Canadians absolutely feel a sense of responsibility towards the Afghans who helped Canadian forces in Afghanistan. Canada's combat role there actually ended in 2011 but overall 40,000 Canadians served in Afghanistan and over 158 died between 2001-2014. The issue has played out against the backdrop of an election in Canada uh, Justin Trudeau, who's hoping to turn his minority government into a majority, has faced criticism for calling the election amid two major challenges, the fourth wave of the pandemic and the Afghanistan withdrawal. He found himself under attack at the start of the campaign for failing to um, foresee, as many did, the, the pace of the, um, of the Taliban advance and for the bureaucratic barriers that people trying to come to Canada appeared to be facing. Um, the early signs are that his lead in the polls is evaporating and, and it seems that the Afghanistan withdrawal will continue to colour the election campaign. He has not yet uh, joined the criticism of Biden's handling of the issue, but I suppose one wonders if that could change if the polls continue to turn against Trudeau. Um, so far, Canada has airlifted more than 1,700 Canadians and eligible Afghans who helped Canadian forces. Um, the government was criticised for not allowing soldiers to leave the airport to collect people, but that appears to have changed by Sunday uh, when military officials said that Special Forces soldiers had been working outside the confines of the airport to help evacuees get through the security gates. Um, but while the UK has recalled Parliament to discuss Afghanistan, Trudeau has suspended it to call his election. He is, though, attending the G7 meeting and will, alongside the UK, push countries to consider new sanctions against the Taliban. Given his immediate political future is at stake, he will be as keen as any to ensure a solution is found to this challenge. Um, he has said the entire focus of the Canadian government is on getting people out and to safety as quickly as possible. As I say, Canada's rescued a 1,000 people already and it's trying to rescue 6,000 and support staff and their families and Afghans who helped Canada before the August 31st deadline and the end of evacuation flights. Overall, the government has pledged to take 21,000 Afghans, including civil society leaders, journalists, etc. But Trudeau acknowledged while on the campaign trail that uh, unless the Taliban shifts its posture significantly, it's going to be very difficult to get everybody out. 
Uh, that was Charlie Mitchell, Times reporter in Ottawa, coming to the picture uh, from Canada. Uh, let's head to uh, Germany now. Uh, journalist there, Katrine Pribble, uh, joins us live. Uh, good morning, Katrine. Yeah. Ah, fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, I, yeah no, I can hear you. Good morning. I can, I, good morning. Nice to have you uh, uh, with us. Well, earlier on, we, we got the picture from uh, France and, uh, and uh, Emmanuel Macron supporting Boris Johnson in at least hoping for an extension in the, uh, the deadline of US forces leaving Afghanistan. We're also led to believe that uh, Angela Merkel is in agreement and she's, she's sort of on Boris Johnson's side on this one, which isn't always the case. Very much so. So the German government really is in favour of extending those evacuation flights. Um, so I do think they will um, try to push, you know, in accordance with um, Boris Johnson and Macron um, to get uh, Joe Biden to extend this um, deadline. Yeah. Uh, is there any expectation? Because I suppose everyone wants the uh, deadline extended because it would mean that, that more people can be uh, taken out to safety. Um, it, even if Joe Biden is persuaded uh, to change his mind during this, uh, this Zoom call later on of the G7 leaders, uh, it all comes down to the Taliban, though, doesn't it? And whether or not, uh, it, so far, they've said that if, if American troops are still there beyond the deadline, there will be consequences. Oh, yes. Um, um, and, and, and I think that's the, the, the problem at the moment, isn't it? Um, but I mean, in Germany, there has been a huge discussion and very harsh criticism towards the government um, because um, of its handling of its local stuff. Um, they were just not quick enough. Um, so it was quite slow in the beginning. So they're trying to keep up now and to actually get more local stuff, which has who have helped the um, the German Bundeswehr over the years to get out. Um, the problem in, in Germany a bit is that we've got the election in September. So um, everyone is a bit careful, I guess, uh, to make big promises, um, especially um, we talked about this before regarding Italy, especially because of immigration and um, yeah, a possible refugee crisis again. Obviously, this is the sort of the swan song of uh, Angela Merkel. Uh, she had her last in-person meeting of the G7 with Boris Johnson in the, in the summer. You know, she'll get to see them all on, uh, on a screen uh, today. But to what extent is German politics sort of moving on from the Merkel era? Her potential successes, are they taking a different line in terms of the amount of support that they want to give to Afghanistan, the number of refugees that they might take? Um, I don't really think so. And I mean, we also have to remember that although Angela Merkel was very welcoming in the beginning during the refugee crisis in 2015, it was quite quickly the the picture has changed or changed back then. Um, so, and then the borders were closed and so on. And um, at the moment, it's just a discussion how many people Germany should take in and if any. So we hear from her um, like successor or like possible successor, um, the leader of the Conservative Party, Party, Armin Laschet, um, like that. It's more about you know helping people in neighboring countries, Afghanistan, helping in the region. Um, and although almost two thirds of the German public is actually in favor of taking in more vulnerable Afghan refugees, I think this is like it's becoming a campaign issue now, um, which hasn't been the case uh, a few weeks ago. But 
Germany has already taken in more than half a million Afghan refugees in the last few years. So the, the question really is now whether more refugees will be welcome. The Green Party, on the other hand, um, their candidate uh, for the election asked for up to 50,000 Afghans to relocate to Germany. But I fear, or I feel like it's just a very sensitive issue and everyone is like um, very careful to make any big promises or um, um, to... Yeah, everyone is, like, is kind of careful to not have a repetition of 2015, which has had a very lasting impact on German politics, as we know. It's a really good speech. You get that picture from uh, Germany. Katrine Pribble there, a journalist in uh, Germany, uh, giving us uh, the picture f- uh, from there. Let's head to Japan now to complete the set uh, of uh, the G7. Ko Hirano is politics and foreign affairs editor for Kyodo News in Tokyo. Uh, good to have you with us. Ah, you can hear you now. Good to have you with us here on uh, Times Radio. Um, what's what? What has been Japan's involvement in Afghanistan, and what are the the current concerns there? Yes, uh, we in Japan we are very how can I say regrettable about the situation in Afghanistan because uh, Japan's policy has been to stabilize uh, uh, the country Afghanistan and not never make uh, the country again as a hotbed hotbed of uh, terrorism. So it's, it's uh, you know, we have been um, extended a total of $6.6 billion US dollars um, since 2001 to train, for example, uh, police forces in Afghanistan and other civil uh, civil measures, like, um, you know, extending a vocational training for former uh, Taliban uh, soldiers uh, so that they can integrate into, into society again. And of course, they have extended uh, lots of aid assistance for uh, agriculture and infrastructure building and education and health area. So despite these efforts, you know, the fall of uh, Kabul, uh, you know, earlier this month was a setback for Japan's effort to, you know, stabilize the country. And uh, of course, this has been coordination with you know, other G7 countries, Europe and um, US, of course. Um, and what about the, yes, this, there seems to be a lot of yes. um, uh, there seems to be a lot of discussion about uh, China and different different countries uh, saying that both Russia and China sort of need to be brought into this conversation, obviously being uh, geographically uh, much closer to, to China than many of the other countries in the G7. What is the what, what is the, the view in, in Japan of, of that? Yes, uh, this uh, U.S. withdrawal from uh, in Afghanistan, um, is, we, are, we, are, we are very concerned about so-called power vacuum uh, of the U.S. American forces from the region. It's a concern. And, um, you know, we are kind of, you know, it's, it's, we have seen many patterns, but China would use, may, may would use uh, the withdrawal American forces from, Af- from Afghanistan as how can I say, as an example to assert its claim um, to undermine U.S. credibility in defense of allies and partners, especially in the Indo-Pacific, when you see tensions around surrounding Taiwan, for example, and of course um, China's um, aggressive claims into territories, uh, territorial disputes into um, you know like Vietnam and the Philippines, South China Sea, and of course in China's um, aggressive claims in the Japanese-controlled. Um, um, islands in East um, uh, East China Sea, so so we are worried about you know America's you know America's how can I say China's use of this case Afghanistan case yeah. um, as as an example yes. 
Kohirano, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, live from uh, Tokyo there, politics and foreign affairs editor of the Kyodo uh, News, giving us, uh, just rounding us off there, um, on uh, how this meeting is being viewed uh, in Japan. That's a full tour of the G7. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.